of the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to a new episode of the Greek Myth Files. This is the third episode of Season 4, and we have quite a treat for you. This episode was written by Thomas Vashon, a classics major at the University of New Hampshire. We are continuing our examination of monsters, moving on from the mighty giants to the dreaded python, a beast best remembered for its death, slain by Apollo. To the Greeks, however, the python was more than just another monster killed at the hands of a hero. No, this event marks an early step out of the primordial murkiness of early mythic history, that is, full of monsters, giants, and titans, into a world of humans and heroes. Out of the remains of the python arose the most holy sanctuary in the Greek world, Delphi, where humans could get closest to the gods. Since this story was so foundational and a core part of the Greek identity, let's examine it closely. On February 14, 1990, the Voyager 1 probe, just on the very edge of our solar system, the furthest any man-made object had ever gone, was given the command to turn around towards its starting point and take one last snapshot of the Earth. The image, known as the pale blue dot, shows an Earth so faint that it barely registers against the expanse of the emptiness around it. I don't care to mull too long on this image. Plenty of people have already done that. A phrase I've heard so often from people discussing it is that it's humbling seeing our home rendered so insignificant in the scale of even just a tiny sliver of a sliver of a portion of our universe. This is our home, huh? Bold to say even that this planet belongs to us. Maybe in our world of mechanized farming, landscape-altering, terraforming, and tall, spindly skyscrapers tempting gravity to bring them crashing down, it's easy to think that the Earth is ours. In Greek mythology, though, if one thing's clear, it's that the Earth was not humanity's to possess. Humans were merely an accessory to the Earth, small creatures insignificant in the cosmic battles waged by the gods and monsters above them. This was the world as it was, not as it would go on to be. And as it stood, there was little room for great Greek heroes like Perseus and Achilles. That would take time. Now, the transition from chaos and a lack of human significance to a human-centered mythical system was messy and chaotic. There's no history here. Myth resists linear chronology since it originates from stories passed down across generations, ones that change, diverge, and coalesce here and there. But if one moment could be marked down as when myth shifted from a cosmic focus to a human one, it would be Apollo slaying the python. This version of the story comes from the Homeric hymn to Apollo. It's unclear exactly when this dates from, but this version was well known in the Greek world. Apollo wanted to establish an oracle on Earth, a place where humans could go to seek divine wisdom and prophecy. He went from place to place, unimpressed with every location he encountered, until he came to a spot on the slope of Mount Parnassus. Apollo knew right away 
that here would be the perfect place. A beautiful sanctuary clinging to the cliff face, overlooking a broad, scenic valley below. A place where people from all corners of the world could go to seek advice beneath the looming peak of Mount Parnassus. But a monstrous serpent lived there. The python. She was a child of Gaia and a brutal oppressor to humanity. But even worse than anything she did herself was the child she adopted and raised as her own. Typhon, a monster even more powerful than her, a monster who nearly overthrew the gods themselves. Apollo took his bow and loosed volley after volley of arrows into the belly of the python. Poison spewed out of her wounds instead of blood, and she writhed along the ground, grasping desperately for a few last moments of life. But it wasn't long before her time had come. She let out a piercing shriek, vomited up blood, and then finally died. It was more massacre than battle, really. But that didn't stop Apollo from gloating as he stood over his quarry. Apollo, as he stood over his quarry, said, Sit there and rot on the soil that feeds men. Now, the Greek word for rot is puthel, a very clever wordplay on the part of the poet. Be that as it may, from the earth the python emerged and into the earth she returned. She was dead, and Apollo would make sure everyone would know that forever. He established a temple there, the site of his oracle, named the Pythia after the python. He also established the Pythian Games, also named for the python, in celebration of his victory. Though there were still some monsters left in the world, most of the remaining ones were threats existing on the outskirts of the world, far from human habitation, and not so powerful that only gods could slay them. The age of monsters was truly dead, or was at least coming to an end. Though the world wasn't made for humans, it was gods like Apollo, the Olympian gods, who made it a human world. To understand the story of the python, first the python has to be understood itself. Unfortunately, the ancient texts that describe it disagree. It's not just that minor details are different. There are major fundamental differences, specifically in its gender and even what kind of monster it was. The Homeric hymns, the oldest source for the myth of the python, refers to it as a drakaina, a she-dragon. The term dragon itself is a complicated one since it's used for such a wide array of disparate creatures separated by time, distance, culture, and history. But it's undisputed that the word dragon is derived from the masculine form of this Greek word drakon, and it's from Greek myths, at least partially, that the modern conception of European dragons derive. The drakon in Greek perception, however, was more like a giant serpent rather than a typical medieval winged four-legged creature. They were similar to later conceptions of a dragon that they tended to guard a single place, harried people in the area, and had a near impenetrable skin. The Homeric hymn's description of the python as a she-dragon is just one of many. Pausanias, the travel writer, refers to the python by that masculine form, drakon. The Latin poet Ovid describes the python in the feminine, but calls it a serpens, which is similar to dracon, but not synonymous. 
Latin had already borrowed the word dracon by this point too, so it's not like Ovid couldn't choose to use it. Another Latin writer, Haginus, also calls it a serapanes, but describes it in the masculine. But maybe describing the python as a serapanes instead of a dracon or dracaina was just a trope unique to Latin authors. But no, that's not the case at all, because Apollodorus, writing in Greek, refers to it as an office, which is roughly synonymous with serapanes, snake. Even on some of the most basic details, none of these authors can agree, whether it's more of a dragon-like monster similar to Typhon, or a serpent-like monster, and whether it's male or female. Retroactively, this discrepancy was rectified by saying that there was two monsters, one male, Python, and one female, Delphine. And it's from these two creatures that the site they were killed got its two names, Pytho and Delphi. For the sake of simplicity, and because the earliest sources all refer to one monster being slain, they'll be regarded as the same monster here in this podcast, the Python. Retcons aside, despite the many differences in the stories, there are, in fact, several similarities. Several sources associate it with Gaia, either being sent forth by the deity or otherwise birthed by her. All the sources agree that it was killed at the hands of Apollo. Most importantly, though, is where the python was killed in the first place. All the sources agree that the python was killed at Delphi, the site of the most important Greek oracle in all of the Greek world. The Pythia, named after the python. As such, the python to all these writers was defined less by what it was in and of itself, but in its relationship to Apollo and Delphi. Now, Delphi was the center around which the whole Greek world orbited, literally. The Greeks believed Delphi was the omphalos, the belly button of the world. It also held their most important religious figure, the Pythia, the oracle of Apollo. Though calling the Pythia just a religious figure is a great disservice. Her influence extended into politics, warfare, philosophy, culture, everything, really. And it's no surprise, then, that Delphi's position as the most sacred site stretches way, way back in time, further than even civilization in the mythical world. Historically, on the other hand, Delphi's claim as an ancient, ancient site is far more tenuous. Understanding Delphi's origins is difficult in part because of its difficult location. It isn't easily accessible. It's built into a steep ascent on Mount Parnassus, clinging on the mountainside as much as the climbers who had to reach it, back before well-paved roads were put in. Why would anyone want to establish an important religious site there? For the longest time, in fact, no one did. Continual settlement in the area didn't occur until the latter half of the second millennium BCE, and even then it was sparse, with little evidence of cultic practice. What little evidence for religious practice there was seemed to have been surrounding funeral rituals instead. Probably the only remarkable thing about it from this early period is that it somehow managed to survive unabandoned through the late Bronze Age collapse, and even then, that wasn't unique for it anyway. It was only with the turn of the 8th century BCE that Delphi established itself as an important religious site. Though it had grown in importance, by no means was it the center of the Greek world, having to compete in the shadow of larger sanctuaries closer to powerful cities. But it was this impediment that proved to be a great relief. 
not being so closely tied to any one city meant it could hold the commonplace for all cities. And as cities grew, so did rivalries, and with rivalries, conflict. When peace set in and battlefields couldn't serve as the arena between competing powers, neutral sites like Delphi made a valuable replacement. It was a place where cities could show their superior piety in the war of diplomacy, not war on the battlefield. The major powers, Athens, Corinth, Sparta, Thebes, sunk tons of silver into the place, funding larger and grander building projects. As the site grew, it saw more traffic, and as it saw more traffic, more eyes were there to read inscriptions bearing the names of the cities that donated to the site. All this is to say that Delphi was a site not built off its antiquity, but rather it was a place well-suited to the circumstances of its time. But it would be damning if the most important site in Greece hadn't held its place of prestige since time immemorial, so it's only natural that myths arose establishing its origin in the primeval period. This is where the myth of the Python comes in. But it wasn't the only one. There were other conflicting myths about Delphi's origin. The poet Alcaeus, for instance, gives a completely different story that Zeus ordered Apollo to establish the Pythia without any reference to the Python itself. Aeschylus, the tragedian, takes Delphi's foundation all the way back to Gaia, making no mention of Python or even Apollo. Now, while all of these myths are completely different from each other in their stories alone, they all do express a wish to make Delphi's foundation something ancient and, in fact, inhuman. Delphi wasn't founded by humans. It was founded by the gods, whether it was Apollo or Apollo under Zeus's orders or Gaia. Furthermore, the stories with the Python and Gaia emphasize Delphi's connection to primordial forces, the earth. Delphi was founded in a time before the world became a human one. Since the whole purpose of Delphi centers around humans' affairs, this makes the site stand as a double bridge. Through the oracle, it bridges the human and the divine above, and through its history, it bridges the present to antiquity. The myth of the python has a complex relationship with the place it's tied to. The myth depends on the place, but the place does not depend on the myth. Delphi's mythological heritage is equally well served whether it was founded by Gaia or Apollo standing over the python's corpse. The python's connection to broader Greek myth is in fact strangely tenuous, not helped by the fact that our two earliest sources, Homer and Hesiod, don't have much to say about Delphi and say nothing about the python. The Homeric hymns say that the python raised Typhon, a fact not mentioned by Hesiod. Surely he would have included this fact if he knew about it, given that he talks about Typhon a lot. It's not until many centuries later, with works like Ovid's Metamorphoses, that the myth became better incorporated into the broader narrative of mythological history, where it became a pivotal moment in the ascent of humanity through the Olympian gods. In most circumstances, a myth's disconnect from the greater narrative is unremarkable. Many local myths, which the story of the Python certainly is, don't bother to connect to any sort of grand narrative. They were stories that grew naturally to entertain and educate a local audience. Ultimately, all myths, we think, started like that. It's just that poets like Hesiod came along later and took this hodgepodge of local myths, genealogies, and anecdotes and stitched them together into a cohesive whole as possible. That the story of the python didn't get stitched into that massive tapestry Hesiod wove would normally warrant an unimpressed shrug. Hesiod didn't include most myths or variants of myths in his works. 
But in this case, Delphi is supposed to be an incredibly important site whose preeminence is supposed to stretch all the way back into the deepest parts of antiquity. So I guess the question really is, is the Python really all that important? Now, the one thing tying the Python to Myth's greater narrative is its relationship to Typhoon, a monster we treated extensively in episode 21. Unlike the Python, Typhoon stands as a major existential threat to the gods and the world they represent, a global threat. He nearly overthrew the gods, and he's one of only a small handful of beings, at least according to one source, Apollodorus, to injure Zeus, king of the gods. His battle with the gods was hard fought, took a long time. And more importantly, Typhon isn't bound to any one specific geographic place. Typhon is a nearly cosmic level threat. To bind his story to just one place would be a disservice, even though in some cases we found that Typhon's remains were located in the real Greek world in various places. Now, can the Python be better understood from understanding Typhon? For all the differences between them, in the end, those differences stand as superficial compared to broader similarities they have. Both are dragons, or at least dragon-like creatures, primordial beings that only the gods could manage to slay, that, with their deaths, helped to usher in the world to the age of humanity. As the story of Typhon goes, From Gaia's womb arose the last of her children, the dreaded Typhon, a massive beast with a hundred serpentine limbs, when Typhon roared, the whole earth shook with such force that every eye awoken all at once looked in awe out at the monster that rose before them. Every limb was a hungry maw. Every limb shot deadly fire. Even the gods became afraid, fleeing as far as they could all the way to Egypt. But Zeus knew that he couldn't hide from Typhon forever. If left unattended to, he would continue to grow further and further until he had wiped clean everything brought to the world before him. Zeus flew to face him, holding back none of his power. He threw volley after volley of thunderbolts, each hitting its target precisely. Typhon screeched in pain, but he hadn't been killed. Most were lucky to survive just one of Zeus's thunderbolts. Typhon responded by ensnaring Zeus in his coiling limbs. Furious, he severed Zeus's tendons from his arms and legs. Now limp and helpless, Typhon hurled him far out of sight. Hermes realized what had happened to Zeus and set out to help him immediately. He retrieved the tendons and returned them to Zeus. Restored and now burning with even more anger than before, Zeus set off again to fight with Typhon. He put all his energy into one last final bolt, hurling it with such ferocity that when it struck its target, instantly all hundred heads on Typhon's snaky limbs turned to charred lumps. Typhon toppled into a bloody heap strewn across the ocean. Victorious, Zeus cast his vanquished foe into the deepest depths of Tartarus, his prison for eternity. But Typhon never completely died in the fight. He still lives in the storms that gather in the sea, the final fraction of his power left on earth, still enough to sink ships and level towns. 
Zeus decided to rule more strictly over the earth. And with the other gods attending to aspects of its affairs, to make sure another monster like Typhon couldn't arise. Sure, the scope of the story is different, but both follow a similar pattern. Serpentine monster wreaks havoc on the land. God comes to slay monster. And upon that slaying, the god stands over the body and sends it back into the earth whence it came. Even the names Python and Typhon are unmistakably similar, almost too similar to be coincidence. Could it be that one is derived from the other? That either the Python was adapted from the grand narrative of Typhon to explain the origins of a single site? Or is Typhon an expansion of the local myth of the Python? Probably not. Mythology rarely evolves in such a neat and orderly way, where the clear through line can be drawn between two related myths. The similarity between the two names likely arose from conflation, with the name of the Python changing to sound more similar to Typhon, making this a false trail. Ultimately, the biggest problem with trying to search for such a clear evolution between the two stories is that it's examining the stories from too narrow a scope. In order to find a wider lens, we have to go further back in time, away from Greece, and examine myths from the Near East. There are two famous ancient Near Eastern myths of serpentine creatures of enormous size, and both are older than our first source mentioning the python. The first is about Tiamat, and the second about Leviathan. In the time before humans walked the earth, there existed a mighty dragon named Tiamat, the goddess of salt water and the mother of the gods. She mated with Apsu, the god of fresh water, and from their union they produced the first generation of gods. That begot another generation, and another, until there was a large family of gods. In the time after the beginning, back when the world had just been made from the formless void, there lived a great serpent in the waters named Leviathan, a monster with a maw studded with countless tears of terrifying teeth, Scales so seamlessly arranged that no weapon can pierce through them, with nostrils producing sulfurous smoke with each exhalation and lightning with each sneeze. From his breath shot out fire. The gods grew numerous and noisy, angering Tiamat. Her husband Apsu plotted against their progeny, but the gods realized what he was planning. They found him, and they bound him, crippled him, and took away his crown. Finally, they slew him. Tiamat learned of what had happened to her husband, and she became furious. She vowed revenge for his death, and she created serpents and dragons, building an army to wipe clean the world of all the gods. The gods grew afraid and elected the young and mighty Marduk to lead them in the upcoming battle. Leviathan and the other sea monsters oppressed humanity. No man could hope to slay it. People at that time lived in the wilderness, fearful of the coast, fearful of the water where the Leviathan could attack them. The people of the world cried out for God's help. Marduk prepared for the battle and he fashioned a great bow and arrow, powerful enough to pierce Tiamat, and a net, large and strong enough to ensnare her. 
he readied the winds to contain her at the proper moment. And during the battle, Marduk and Tiamat met. Tiamat tried to cast a spell on Marduk, but it failed, and the gods cast the net over Tiamat while the winds rushed through her mouth, inflating her innards. Marduk saw an opening and loosed an arrow into her gut, killing her in an instant. God came down upon the waters, armed with a sword. He whipped up the sea, throwing the sea monsters up from the water, where he killed them. Leviathan rose to attack God, but his armor was no match for God's strength. He stabbed the beast and crushed its head. No creature, not even the great Leviathan, can compare to God's might. Marduk split Tiamat's corpse in half. One half he cast up above to form the heavens, the other half was used to form the earth. From her breasts, the hills and mountains were created, and from her eyes flowed the Tigris and Euphrates. But the gods grew tired of fashioning the earth, and so they created humans to do their work for them. And so humanity was created to fashion the earth to their will, at the behest of the gods above. God pulled Leviathan's corpse to the land, where he offered it to humanity as food. The people rejoiced that their oppressor was vanquished, no longer fearing the sea. But Leviathan still lurks in the deepest waters to this day, ready to harry any wayward ships that stray too far from shore. His power is still great, if seldom seen. The story of Marduk and Tiamat comes from the Enuma Elish, a Babylonian epic poem originally composed around the early to mid-second millennium BCE. The story of God and Leviathan was pieced together from multiple references scattered throughout the Bible, each dating from different times, and those dates can sometimes be difficult to parse out. However, one of the sources mentioning Leviathan, 1st Isaiah, can confidently be dated to the 8th century BCE. The influence these older stories had on the later Greek ones is unmistakable. All four of these stories, the Python, Typhoon, Tiamat, and Leviathan, follow a similar pattern. To explain what that pattern is, again, would be a waste of breath, so let's focus on one key element of the story. What happens after the monster is slain? In each case, killing the monster is done ultimately in the service of humanity. These monsters are impediments to humanity's success. With their deaths, humans are finally able to impose their will on nature. So, what is the Python? It's a representation of nature untamed, nature unfeeling to man's prosperity or survival. In all likelihood, these monstrous serpents have existed in imaginations long, long before we had the tools to record them. The Americas had their own stories of mighty serpents, completely uninfluenced by these stories we've been talking about that circulated in the old world. This kind of monster simply sticks in the brain. It's almost as if it demands to be talked about. Now that we've figured out what the python is, or at least what we think it is, we can finally get back to our main focus. What does the story of the python mean? It remains a complicated question, one that would take a great deal of time to fully unravel. But Apollo's triumph over the python can be seen as a triumph over primordial forces, creating a world where humans can thrive and survive. This was the same thing with the story of Typhon, and Tiamat, and Leviathan. 
It's almost as if understanding the Python itself is to understand the story. They're inseparable. The extra bits added to the story, Apollo, Delphi, the Pythia, and the Pythian games, all exist to take the ancient story and adapt it to its specific locale. And that's why the Python is so tightly tied to Delphi. If it wasn't, what else would make Python the Python? In the beginning, the Earth wasn't humanity's to possess. We came to claim it as our own, but we amount to microscopic specks of dust on a tiny ball. The ancients didn't have fancy probes powered by the best modern technology we have to offer, with trajectories plotted out using complex mathematics, and sophisticated theories that seek to explain the hidden workings of the universe to show us how small they could be. But they did have stories. And while all these stories of dragons and serpents are stories of triumph for humanity, they also should remind us of what we were, and in many ways still are, tiny, small, and subject to the whim of forces beyond us. That's what make them monsters. Monsters exist to make humans feel weak and small. They are far beyond us in size and power, and far too big for any regular, unexceptional person to defeat. They manifest the most difficult aspects of human existence in the flesh. But even more so than that, monsters can, and repeatedly are, perhaps inevitably so, slain. While monsters are horrifyingly imposing, destructive, terrifying, that does not make them insurmountable. That Voyager probe that took that picture of the Earth also carries on it a golden record containing examples of sounds and images of humanity. In case some aliens were to stumble upon it and make sense of what it was and who sent it. Included in it was a collection of greetings in 59 languages, including the languages each of the stories mentioned here were originally written in. Notably prominent in the contents of the record are human things, our languages, our music, our architecture, our biology. Notably absent from the record are destruction and natural disasters, horrible things, terrifying events. In shooting our Best Hits album out into space, we slew our proverbial python by tiptoeing around the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the tsunamis, and the typhoons that continue to ravage us and remind us of just how powerless we can be. Only to have our vehicle, carrying our record of humanity, to return to us a python with that image of a pale blue dot. Well, that's it for another edition of The Greek Myth Files. We thank you for tuning in and hope you had as much fun listening to the podcast as we did in making it. We had a very special guest today write and compose our episode, Mr. Thomas Bashan, a classics major at the University of New Hampshire. We're very thankful that he took the time to write about one of his favorite subjects. Great thanks also go to our voice actors, A.J. O'Neill and Julia Summer, who have been stalwarts in this podcast since the beginning. Great thanks also go to Jared Sims, who has graciously allowed us to use Brooklyn T, one of his fine jazz compositions for our music. On a sadder note, we've had to say goodbye to our sound engineer, Samantha Coutier. She graduated and she's now taking a job somewhere out in the West, and we wish her the very best. These have been the Greek Myth Files, signing out for just a little while. See you next time.